I'm Gemma Patterson. I'm the global ambassador for the Balvenie, and you're listening to the Balvenie Stories series. We're going to take a trip behind the scenes where we're going to meet the people and explore the places that help to shape these incredible whiskies. My favourite thing about my job, what I love most, is that my days are filled with stories. Whether that's stories about how our whiskies are made, the people who make them, or where it's made, all of these things contribute to really bringing the story of the Balveni to life. Over the last few months, I've had the pleasure of travelling around the world to meet the people who helped us to make the Balveni Stories series. In this episode, we're going to explore what a Cooper's Apprentice, tarring and feathering, and some stilt and cheese have in common. This story is all about oak and the barrels that we use to make our whiskey. So we're going to start in Dufton at the Balveni Cooperage. We're on the way up to the Cooperage now, walking through the yard where we store a lot of our barrels. There's around 40,000 surrounding me right now, as far as the eye can see, and the smell of whiskey is absolutely incredible. The sweet toast of American oak is only possible because of these well-travelled barrels and the skills and the expertise of our coopers who make them. We're going to meet Ian McDonald, our head cooper, and Liam, his apprentice, and hear just how this story began. Ian, we're standing here in the yard where the very barrels arrived to create the sweet toast of American oak. Can you talk to us a little bit about the process? Okay, so the, all the containers arrive from America. The, the, the barrels get unloaded here and they get examined to make sure they're fit for filling. This special container come in. Once we checked them, they didn't have the heavy char like the normal bourbons do, as they were a new barrel. They were only toasted. Mm, so, they've just been given a really deep toast. That's right. So myself and Kelsey, our, our apprentice malt master, decided we could do a special experiment with this ones and we'd give them a second toast. So they got a deeper toast mm-hmm. and uh, the apprentices, they would remove the ends and they would dig them over and they'd get them. The heat would be applied to them, just give them a second toast to improve the quality and make it a different type of variant. Mm-hmm. This is something completely unique that we've never done before. That's right. We never, all, the new barrels that arrive on site, we ne- we've never never given them a second toast before. So this is quite unique. So I'm sure we're going to get a good uh, taste of whiskey coming out of them. Mm. We're here with Liam, our apprentice. What's your day-to-day like, Liam? What kind of jobs are you working on as apprentice here? Basically just doing what the Coopers are doing, but obviously we're still still learning yet, so we're trying to learn everything we can, trying to get up to speed, mm-hmm. but we seem to be getting there. And I think probably for a lot of people listening at home, they wouldn't realise how dedicated you have to be to study an apprenticeship Aye. to become a Cooper. It's four years, right, yep, you're embarking on? Uh, after the third year, you get a, you get a trades test, mm-hmm. and then after that, you, you get a time served Cooper in your three-year test. I think it's Liam's forgot about the most important most important part after the trades test. Uh, it's yeah. all right What's saying that? you complete your apprenticeship, uh. but the Coopers have a lot more to do than just get your ticket at the end of the mm-hmm. apprenticeship. Right. I think uh, Liam's admitted the tarred and feathered part, <laughs> which is a very important <laughs> ritual to the, the, the whole of the Cooper in the industry. 
I don't think there'd be a Cooper it hasn't been tarred and feathered. If it hasn't been tarred and feathered, it's not really inducted mm-hmm. into the, the ritual of the cooperage, right? So tarred and feathered. Tarred and feathered, right? What does that involve? Tell me. So for Liam, it would be he'd be repairing like one of these casks over there, the, the big punching, yep. right? And whenever the Cooper think it's time for him, we just grab a hold of them, throw them in the cask and he's just repaired. But they would have a special mix of a concoction all ready for them to pour over them. Maybe treacle, charcoal, just everything, even flour. Then they cover them with all this gunge, just tarred and feathered them. Don't use feathers, but just all the, just the gunge of the day, just dunk them <laughs> over it. Then just roll them around gently in the cask. <laughs> you can understand <laughs> <laughs> gently for a coupon. <laughs> what a day to look forward to, to uh, celebrate completing your apprenticeship. Yeah. That'll be a good laugh. It is, yeah. Do you remember the day that you were tarred and feathered, <laughs> I Ian? I remember it well, very well, and I've still got pictures to prove it. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's good fun. I did, I did my trace test. I was one of the first ones in the Federation. It's just basically a test. You, you build a barrel, pair a big a sherry butt, yep. cut in an end, and they'll just ask you different questions on, on coopering. And basically they're standing watching you how you use the tools to make sure you, you can use the tools properly. And it's, so after you've done your, your trade test then, it just gives you opportunity to be self-sufficient basically. You've still got a cooper, you're still learning, you never stop learning. There's always easier ways of doing things and as they say, practice makes perfection. Mm-hmm. Okay? So that's uh, what Liam and Jack have started to look forward to. Okay? I, I am unfortunate, uh, uh, I actually am a, a trades tester. Right, so I go around the different coopages in the area, trade testing the other apprentices. Right, I won't be able to do uh, Liam because he's he's learning by asset here, mm-hmm. but here we'll get somebody from another independent coopage will come in assess, assess uh, Liam and Jack. You wouldn't put anybody through a trade test if you don't think they're capable of, of passing it. Right, it's the same as when you learn to drive. Your instructor won't put your name in for a test mm-hmm. unless you're going to pass it. Mm-hmm. So it's the same with apprentice and. The third year, they're quite competent in, in, in passing trades test. So you've had many, many, many coopers over the years that you've tested. Well, we've tested quite a few, yes. Eh? But there's, uh, it's quite, quite uh, good just now because there's quite a lot of apprentices just a number of years come into the trade. So we're mm. quite, quite busy trade testing just now. The cooper industry is thriving along with the whisky industry. The whole business is booming just now. So to, to, to meet the demands of the, of the, the whiskey industry, most coopers are employing and learning more apprentices. Mm-hmm. There's just not enough coopers now to go around to do all the work. Okay? And we're all getting older as well. Okay? <laughs> yeah, bring some, bring some right. fresh blood in. Yeah, right. But and the it, incredible thing is, this is an art that's in an ancient skill coopering. It goes right back to ancient Egyptian times, right? That's right. And these techniques have been passed on from generation to generation to generation. That's right. The barrel builder thing. Well, most of your consumables were transferred in barrels mm-hmm. before, uh, in, the, in the, the cargo ships, and there's even coopers on the, on the cargo ships. Now, I think there's only about just over 200 practicing coopers, production coopers in Scotland just now. So we need we need to learn these guys to keep the craft alive. We're lucky to have the interest of like uh, Liam and Jack showing the the skills that they want to carry on this traditional craft. When did you start, Liam, again? Uh, just under a year ago, started start of July last year. Okay, and your tools are very important, right? Ah, uh, yeah. Can you talk to us a bit about your tools that you use? Well, 
when I first the first day I started, I looked at the tools and I thought, what am I meant to do with that? <laughs> but uh, after a after a few weeks, kind of you get used to it because you're using them every day. So after a few weeks and then months go on, your hammer molds your hand. Yeah. So you grip your hammer. When you pick it up, you can't it's your hammer. But if you pick it up somebody else's, you'll never be able to feel the same in your hand or not. The same with your your driver that you hit for tightening hoops. It's the same. Mold your hand. Becomes an extension of you. Yeah. And you have the same workbench you work at every day as well, ah, right? Yeah. Same bench, yeah. And the apprentices are quite lucky as well because they, they, they don't actually have to purchase their tools. The Kubrick Federation gives every apprentice with a set of tools. And this set of tools cost over £1,000. But they do last you quite a long time because my tools, okay, they may be a new wooden shaft or a fiberglass shaft. And but basically, the heads, the tools are down you for a long, long time. We've got, you've got a Cooper Ian Jason, he uses his grandfather's that's tools, right? right? That's right. And the older tools seem to be more preferred than the newer tools. They seem to be a lot, lot harder and they can stay mm -hmm. sharp a lot longer than mm -hmm. the, the new ones. They're maybe tempered better, I don't know, but maybe something just in the mind that the, it seemed better because of his grandest tools. Yeah, yeah it's but, incredible yeah. to think about the number of casks that have matured whiskey over the years that those tools have made. That's right. And actually, and even just the number of casks you've made over the years. So we calculated what you've you've made around, you've built up about a quarter of a million yeah. barrels in your that's career right. in 50 years. That's right, yeah. That's, that's a lot of barrels. Yeah. A lot of whiskey. What a legacy. That's right, yeah. I suppose, how does it make you feel, I'm thinking that um, some barrels that like Ian made back in the, the late 60s, early 70s, you know, are being bottled as very special above any's mm -hmm. potentially today yeah. that maybe in like 10 years 20 30 40 potentially even 50 years people will be drinking whiskey from a barrel that you made mm -hmm. yeah it's some legacy to leave like brilliant yeah. that's right it's quite quite an honor to be be a mm -hmm. cooper yeah. i completely agree yeah. well liam we better let you get back to work yeah no worries thanks so much for chatting to us Bye, thanks cheers cheers yeah. Yeah. Ian, tell me, so it's a big year for you this year. In a few weeks' time, you're going to be celebrating your 50th anniversary with that's us. Right, that's right. I started away back in 1969 and uh, I started as an apprentice cooper, although I didn't start my apprenticeship until I was 16. Left the school at 15, came here at 15. Uh, with a view to becoming an apprentice cooper. Yeah. And what date in April did you start? I started the 29th of April. 29th of April 1969. 1969. So here we are with the 29th of April mm. 2019 just okay. approaching. And it just, do you think the team are going to do something special for you I'm for sure, your 50th? I'm, I'm sure they will. <laughs> Retar and feather? No, Round no, two? No, don't put any ideas into their head. <laughs> I will absolutely put those ideas into their heads. You'll be pouring the buckets over. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come in with my guns right and a bag of flour. No, it's, uh, we've got a very good team uh, yeah. in, in the Cooperage here. And they're a nice team to work with. And you must have a lot of love for what you do to have done it for so long. It's something that you grew up with. Can you've got the passion for the wood? Because, uh, well, as I say, when I left the school, I wanted to work with wood and, and metal. Yeah. Right? So there used to be two cooperages up the town, and I used to go down there and watch you guys making the barrels. When it's, you were young. When I was a young, when I started school. Yeah. Used to go down, and they worked late at nights and worked Saturdays as well, so you could watch them, and it was, it was really good to watch. Yeah. And I just fancied doing it, so I just 
before I left the school, I came down to see the manager, manager at the story, asked if there any chance of getting an apprenticeship. So I just well, left it a wee while and mm-hmm. I got a phone call. Well, my mum got a, a, a letter saying for me to come down and get an interview and I got left the school at Easter and just started straight off. So I never regretted it. It's no. been good, it's been good. From the clatter and drama of our cooperage in Scotland, I've travelled over three and a half thousand miles to Louisville, Kentucky, where I'm just about to meet with Kelsey McKechnie, who is our apprentice malt master for the Balveni. Kelsey works alongside our malt master, David Stewart, and is an exciting young voice in the world of whiskey. She's played a big part in the making of the sweet toast of American oak and has joined me in Kentucky to help tell this story. Here we are in Louisville and Kentucky in an iconic bar. Kelsey, it's quite an incredible job that you have. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into it? Yeah, of course. So I started working at William Grant & Sons about six years ago. Mm-hmm. I studied sciences at university and I always knew I wanted to work in a lab. So I applied for a position at William Grant & Sons in the Lowlands and I started working in our technical centre there. So working in the lab, I was able to carry out analysis from everything from our incoming cereals, so our grains, our malted barley, right through to our stills, so carrying out distillation profiles and taking all these samples throughout the distillation run and carrying out the analysis, seeing what flavours were more intense at which point throughout the distillation run. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. The amount of knowledge that I gained working in this position was just fantastic. But I'm a little bit greedy and I used to see people in the lab doing nosing. And I always thought, well, I want a bit of a go at that. I always loved the smell of whiskey. Mm-hmm. So I started the nosing panel and I seemed to be quite good at being able to pick out the different flavours and the spirit. You seemed to be quite good. <laughs> it's not bad at it. So humble. Um, so I started working basically more in our blending team. So not before long, I started working more for Brian in terms of actually different spirit that we had, more a lot more in Glenfiddich whiskies as well. How can we make the same unique flavour profile of each spirit? So, I mean, mm-hmm. I was so lucky that I was able to work across all of our single malts, our blends, blended malts, and actually creating that unique flavour profile in each one of our spirits. And for me, it's something that I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. When we talk about different flavours that we enhance in the spirit, I think a lot of people don't realise how much actually goes into it. How can we draw out more intense flavours from different wood types? And how can we really narrow in on that sweet spot throughout a distillation run to really capture a really fruity flavour or more yep. citrus and, and these sorts of things. So, And that's something that David's done an incredible job with. Oh, absolutely. With all of his experimentation with cask finishing over the years. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't think of anyone else to, to be able to learn the art of blending of any whiskey from than David Stewart. He has worked at William Grant Sons for 56 years, so if there's a tale or a nugget of information, then David knows it, so I'm mm-hmm. going to pull it out of him one way or another. So, <laughs> no, I've been so lucky, and it is great working alongside him and, and actually learning really right from the horse's mouth, if you like, about cask finishing, how we actually yeah. marry these different flavours together, even things like every month we do our, our cask finishing. So that's basically any time that we fill spirit into its finishing wood type, so both any 14-year-old Caribbean cask moving into those rum barrels um, for... 21-year-old port wood when we actually yep. move it into the port pipes. As soon as we fill the spirit into these casks and we start sampling, so every time the samples come down, we nose them, and it's based purely off of what we pick up in our nose when we've hit that sweet spot. 
So the analysis is great. We always carry out the analysis as soon as we receive the samples as well. But our nose always has the final say because it's the strongest instrument we've got. Is there anything unexpected about your job? One of the most surprising things people wouldn't expect about this role is how strict we are with the different smells and the aromas in the nose and room. So a, a typical day for me, um, I would have coffee before I'm about to nose because just the smell. Cope without coffee in the morning? I know, you learn to survive. Um, I wouldn't wear perfume to work either, it would be too mm -hmm. overpowering. I obviously would wear unscented deodorant as well because you don't want any aroma in the sample room at all. So we're really strict with, with what aromas we have in there because we want yeah. a really clean room and only the smell and aroma from the spirit to come off. And when I think back about actually learning to train my nose and actually mm -hmm. learning how to blend whiskey and how to marry different casts together, I was working day in, day out with Brian Kinsman, who's Wine Grandson's master blender. And on this particular day, I knew that there was definitely a sweet smell of perfume and it was coming from me. And we were nose and spirit side by side and he was saying to me, can you smell that smell? There's a really strong floral smell. Knowing fine well it was me, I was saying, I've got absolutely no idea where that's coming from. No, it must just be you. Um, and as the day was progressing, I could feel and smell that it was getting even stronger, to which Brian turned around to me and said, this must be you. And I was like, I know, it's me. But because I was so embarrassed, I was getting warmer and the smell was getting more intense. So needless to say, that day we didn't get too much nosing done because the whole room was an overpowering perfume smell. Oh, Kelsey, that's hilarious. What's your day-to-day -day like in the sample room? A regular day at work for me is setting up a lot of blends, so mm -hmm. basically making sure that all of the casts that we've noticed and tasted that are absolutely perfect, that we send the right ones to the bottling line. Um, then we're setting up any cask finishing, so when we're looking at 14-year-old Caribbean casks, 21-year-old Portwood, as soon as we fill that spirit into cask after 14 years of maturing in American oak or whatever its first finish is going to be, if you like, at that point then we move on to the next wood type. We sample every month. So we do a lot of sampling until we get to that absolute sweet spot and the spirit's absolutely perfect. And then at that point, we know it's ready to move on and we can send it to be bottled and sent everywhere all over the world. Kelsey and I are on our way from Louisville, Kentucky, out to the Kelvin Cooperage to meet with owner Paul McLaughlin. Kelvin Cooperage was founded in the early 60s by Paul's dad, Ed McLaughlin. In the early 90s, the Cooperage was taken over by Paul's brother Kevin, and Kevin and Paul then moved the Cooperage to Louisville, Kentucky, right in the heart of bourbon country. Hi Paul, how are you doing? Very well, welcome to Kentucky. Thank Good you. Good to see you again. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a beautiful day. Sunny skies. Finally, it's it's been a long, cold, wet winter. So we're <laughs> happy for this uh, break in the weather. Has it felt a bit like home? Uh, yes, unfortunately. Some dreek weather. <laughs> yeah, completely <laughs> dreek day after day. Yes. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, how you ended up here, Paul? Because obviously <laughs> yeah. you're not from Kentucky. I, no, I asked we're myself, sitting in Kentucky, I but your accent's very familiar all to the us. Time. Yeah, so I grew up in in Scotland, and my dad had a cooperage. Um, just outside Glasgow, servicing Scotch whisky industry. And at that time, cooperages in Scotland were basically just bringing in ex-bourbon barrels, repairing them and supplying them to distilleries. So at some point, a light bulb went off and uh, someone thought, well, why don't we go to Kentucky and fix the barrels there and then ship them to Scotland, which made sense kind of logistically. 
So uh, my brother moved here in 1991 and started Kelvin Cooperage, Kentucky. Um, and then we focused everything on Kentucky, closed the Cooperage in Scotland, and run everything out of here. So we've been here since 1991. Um, and at that point, we were doing mainly used barrels for Scotland. Um, and then we started making new barrels for the wine industry. Uh, it was when American oak was starting to be used for wine. And we learned a lot about our toasting regime from doing wine barrels. Wine barrels, obviously, you have to toast very slowly and you're trying not to overpower delicate wines. So you really get to learn the subtleties of American oak. So we started doing that. I joined in 2001. So I've been here 18 and a half years now. After swearing, I would never work with my family for many years, but I was a lawyer and working for the family was a better option than continuing as a lawyer. Um, so I came and uh, we've been doing it ever since. We kind of um, have evolved out of as many new wine barrels and now doing more and more new whiskey barrels, obviously, because um, craft distilling has really taken off in the last you know, six, seven, eight years. Yeah. So we've been so excited to be here to explore um, the process and what um, the work that Kelsey and yourself did on the Sweet Toast of American Oak. Mm -hmm. Do you want to take us through the process and what you did? So um, we were approached to take on this task to find a way to unlock the sweetness in American Oak, which is something mm -hmm. we chase all the time in our new barrel production. Um, we do things a little differently. We're quite traditional where we do um, a long, slow toast over natural fires. We don't use any gas uh, to accelerate the process. Yeah. We also aren't beholden to time and temperature. We rely on um, all human elements of um, sight and smell to let us know when we've unlocked the sweetness we're looking for. So what that translates into is a long, slow toast on the natural fires followed by a charring. So we won't let the barrel ignite into full char till we are satisfied that we've got a nice toast layer underneath. Um, and we do that based on the smell. So yeah. when we hit the right notes, you know it instantly. You get, there's a kind of a nutty baked bread, marzipan, smell a lot a lot of people describe it as campfire or um, marshmallows melting on a campfire so all really desirable notes and when you hit it you know it's just this great sweet smell we hit that and then we let it char and then when we char we're very careful not to burn away that lovely toast that we've just put in so what we did for this project was really focus on lengthening and slowing down the toast to really, really hit the sweetness, mm -hmm. uh, and then doing the doing the char after that. So that was what we were going for, and I think I think we hit it. And you know, it's worked out so well. So um, we'd obviously taken the barrels the exact way that we wanted them, like you're saying, that long, prolonged toast, really pushing all those flavour compounds out. Brought them back to our own cooperage in Speyside, and because we needed Ian McDonald to to be busy, we can't have him sitting there <laughs> twiddling his thumbs. So we'd asked Ian to do something a little bit similar, so give it a long deep toast again. We just really wanted to exhaust the barrels and really give them that double toast. And where we would potentially use new wood barrels a few times over, because like you're saying, we can really take that flavour out of them each time. So actually charring it back off, toasting them again. We left that char layer that you've put on the barrels, brought them back into the cooperage and Ian gave them a long deep toast again. 
which is amazing. I've never heard of anyone doing that. That's the truly unique part of this whole project that attracted us to it, because that's something, you know, we love seeing those results. Okay, so Paul, if you don't mind just showing us around and taking us on a little walkthrough of the Cooperage. Yeah, so we are full service Cooperage, used barrels and new barrels all in one location. So we're bringing in hundreds of thousands of freshly emptied bourbon barrels every year. Can smell it, the smell in here is incredible. Definitely yeah, smells yeah. like whiskey. I, I only smell it on a Monday morning and then the rest of the week I'm immune to it. Um, but so we do the used barrels and then we're also making new American oak barrels from scratch. So we're bringing in rough American oak, planing and jointing it, uh, rising up the barrel, bending it and then uh, toasting and charring it over natural oak fires. So we're full service. Uh, you see the full life cycle of a barrel here from start all the way to finish. And then it's after life uh, being refilled in, in Scotland. Um, for Scotch whiskey, so it's a nice uh, overall view of the process. Unfortunately, it's very loud. You're starting to smell some of the toasting as we get nearer the fires. Just a real bustle of activity. The rate at everyone's working is amazing. It's actually really mesmerizing to watch, to watch all the fires, to watch everyone working. It's amazing the amount of work that goes into when we get the barrels back in Speyside. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not that anyone doesn't think there's a lot of love that goes into it, but I mean, really it's... It's a very primal process. We've got water, fire, we've got wood, you know, it's just it's very um, old-fashioned, traditional, and you do get mesmerized by the fire. Bring this one off in a minute and smell it. Do you want us to come in? We'll go right in by the fires. It's such an intense heat. It's, it's quite intense in here. It is so hot in here. <laughs> so we'll let this cool down a bit and then we'll smell it. I mean, this looks beautiful. So you can see, really nice toast. That's what we're talking about with the marzipan baked bread. That is so lovely. Oh wow. That's that, exactly what we're talking about. Just like Paul saying, that bread note is so sweet. That cereal sweetness yeah, coming off of it from the wood. Like bacon bread. It is yeah. lovely. And so this is the point, Paul, that you were saying the guys are trained to identify this, this specific yeah. aroma. Yeah. And he knew I was trying to get him to take it off. And he wouldn't what take it off. <laughs> it's like, well, we need to get going here. Um, so yeah. that, that's exactly what we want. Um, but it's just that and you beautiful can see the sweetness. inside isn't charred at all. It's just yeah. The, the wood is just gently toasted. Yeah, and that's because we're doing it deliberately, gently, keeping the fires low. Yeah. Um, you know, doing everything we can to not let it ignite until we're ready for it to ignite. So that's exactly what we want. Even though starting to smell it. It's really, really sweet. So we get asked a lot when people ask what the difference is between a toast and a char. Yeah. 
do whenever we talk about basically is how long we're going to keep the heat on and how intense it is. Do you find it, this sort of process that it's easy to control? So like with this barrel, the back of the toast is... Yeah, yeah and, and because we were doing all sorts of different toasts for wine, you know, this is something we're really comfortable doing. Um, and, and feel like we do have an edge of the control, even, even if it doesn't look like it, we're going to have it it's absolutely mind-blowing to me. There's nowhere else that we can go where we'll see them do this over natural oak fires probably in Kentucky. Not. Yes, probably not. Most of the most of the people that are making uh, a big volume of whiskey barrels will use gas because it's much quicker. Yeah. Uh, so our production is definitely limited by doing this, but we think it's worth it. Oh, definitely. The value in doing this and the aroma coming off the barrel is just yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, and it's still, it's still lingering there. Yeah, it's changing as well. I've never smelled anything like it. Yeah. So when I come home at the end of the day, my this kids love, they love that smell. They smell like the cooperage, and that's the smell they love. Do you have any barrels that are about to head over to Scotland? Yes, we do. Always. Let's go have a look. So here we are outside now. We're on the on the loading dock. And that noise you hear is the barrels being rolled along the loading dock. They've been freshly emptied. So that barrel held bourbon until yesterday afternoon or this morning. Yep. They've dumped it. It's come down the road to us. We've graded it, selected it out. And now we're going to load it on these containers that are headed over to um, Scotland for refill with some beautiful Balvenie. Well, Kelsey, it's been a great day. I don't know about you, but I feel ready for a dram. Oh, definitely. So we've got a bottle of the Sweet Toast of American Oak, and this is the first bottle to be poured here in Kentucky. I know, it is so exciting, especially after today and actually seeing how our barrels were produced, bringing them over to Scotland, maturing the spirit, and then actually bringing the first bottle back here. It's like the full loop, isn't it? Yeah, that's so exciting. Please pour us a dram. Thank you. How does it feel? Oh, it's obviously so exciting to actually see everything come together and see the liquid that we've been working on for so long actually making it into a bottle. I mean, it's such a proud moment, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It must be. Give it a nose. Yeah, give it a nose. Talk us, talk us through the tasting. So it's at 43%, so I don't know how everyone else drinks their whiskey. I usually like to add a few drops of water in there just to really push all that gorgeous flavour from the liquid right up into the headspace in the glass. So add a few drops in there. The colour's incredible. It's almost like a rich amber colour. Isn't it? And it's, I mean, like we were talking about with those new wood barrels and giving it that deep char, that twice toasted char layer. As soon as the whiskey touches the inside, as soon as we get that contact with the wood, you just see the colour intensify straight away and we can see it. It's beautiful. And it's only a couple of months, right? It is, yep. We keep it in there about 12 weeks just until we can get the exact flavour profile. So anything between 9 and 12 weeks for us is perfect. So 12 years in that first fill bourbon barrel yep. and then 9 to 12 weeks in, in the our, Kelvin cask. Exactly, in our brand new American oak barrel. Mm -hmm. Well, cheers. 
So in the nose, it's definitely those rich, fruity flavours. So everything that's iconic about Bovenny, so all those lovely, deep, toffee, marzipan notes mm -hmm. are really complemented so well with the new American note. And because it's never touched any other spin in its life, it really gives off that intense coconut flavour. So we get all those lovely, beautiful Bovenny flavours. And then right off the back of that, we get a light citrus and all those toffee and mouth-coating citrus sweet flavours coming through. Okay, mm -hmm. and we sip lovely. So again, that intense fruitness, like all those toffee flavours that we're talking about, everything that's really unique to Bovenny. You get that really lovely sweetness, that mouth coating effect, but then off the back of that you do get more of a marzipan, those vanilla notes coming through, mm. and that light coconut. It's really beautiful, lovely and sweet. It is. Juicy and sweet. Absolutely. And just that, that long-lasting sweet aftertaste, it's really beautiful. We didn't talk about it before, but all those candied flavours, so the candied fruit, all those flavours from Bovenny, I think it really leaves a lasting effect in your mouth, doesn't it? If you were to pair this with something, with a kind of food, what would you pair it with? Well, I am a huge cheese fan anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, here, here. <laughs> so I would pair something like this with a really creamy cheese because it's mm. got the citrus element in it as well. It really cuts through any of the, the mouthfeel and the coating that cheese would leave in your mouth. So something like a Stilton, although typically we would pair them with something a little bit older. For me, something like a Stilton paired with this because it's still 12 years old and it's got a little bit more liveliness than something yeah. that's been really aged on. It would really cut through that so well. So I, I think absolutely in something like a, a really rich, creamy Stilton, it would be fantastic. Mm. Yeah, with the sweetness and the fruitiness, 100%, absolutely. Well, cheers to that. Thank you, cheers. That was the story of the people and the places that made the sweet toast of American oak. It was such a pleasure to meet Ian and Liam at our Cooperage, travel to Kentucky to meet with Paul and get to know Kelsey along the way. It's going to be impossible for me to sip this whiskey and not think back on the journey that these sweet American oak barrels have made from Kentucky to Dufton. Thanks for listening. Join us again for the next podcast in the Bovenny Stories series.